How's everybody doing? Praise God. Well, if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Greg kick off our sermon series on uh, He is Here, Hope for Today. How many of you were here for that last week? Amen. That was probably one of the best teachings on hope that I've ever heard. And if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to get the podcast from last week because it, when I listened to it, it ministered to me. And, you know, I've been serving God for many, many years, but there were some truths that as Greg was unfolding from the Word of God, gripped my heart, and I said, wow, God, I've never quite seen them that way before. And so I want to encourage you, get hold of that because it really was an incredible, incredible um, teaching on hope, one of the best I've heard. So we are doing a series on hope three-part series ending tomorrow, Christmas Day, with Pastor Seviwe. And um, really the purpose of this is to encourage everybody that Jesus is our hope. This is a time of hope. This is a time of encouragement. This is a time where we are looking to Him, Jesus Christ. And um, this was true 2,000 years ago when He walked on this planet. It was true 7,000 years ago when He promised Abram that he would become the father of many nations. And friends, it is true today that Jesus is the hope of the world. It is true today as he desires to walk with us. And so I'm going to continue today, and my topic is on confirming hope. And as I said, Pastor Saviwa will be finalizing tomorrow with covering living hope. But before I dive into my topic, because it's going to flow from where Greg started us off last week, I want to do a bit of a recap on what Greg kicked off with last week on the topic of expecting hope. And the first thing he did was he defined hope, because how many of you know it's important that we understand biblical definitions of words if we want to understand what God's trying to say to us? Because the word hope today, if you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, it's kind of a bit airy-fairy. It's kind of a bit not quite there, not quite here. It's, it's kind of this, well, it's up to fate. It's kind of like, well, maybe, maybe not. But that is not the biblical definition of hope. When we read the Word of God, we see that when God speaks about hope, He's speaking about something which is confident, which is joyful, which is an expectation. And that's why hope is the substance. Hope is the fabric. Hope is the material from which we build faith, from which faith is made. Because the Word of God tells us in Hebrews that faith is the substance of things hoped for. And so hope is not this airy-fairy thing, because if it was airy-fairy, God wouldn't be able to build faith out of it. But faith, because it's this confident, this joyful expectation that God will do what He said He will do, it forms the basic building blocks of faith. Greg took us through a few examples, and as we all know from our own personal lives, expecting hope can be hard at times, especially when we get disillusioned, when we get hurt, And when things don't quite go the way we think they should. But even in those tough times, when we hold on to God and His words, and we press into God's hope, we know that it's powerful and it's eternal. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, now these three will remain. Faith, hope, and love. When everything else has passed away, 
When we go to be with Him in, in heaven one day, when there's no more need of tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecies and the various gifts of the Spirit because we are living in perfect love, we're perfect bodies and we're living in perfect harmony with each other, with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, once all that other stuff passes away, three things will still remain. Faith, hope, and love. And so hope is eternal and hope is powerful. And we know that hopelessness is brought about by disappointment. And sometimes when we get disappointed, they may be legitimate disappointments, but more often than not, they are illegitimate disappointments. They're kind of things that we brought on ourselves, things that we thought God was saying in a certain way. But when we're really honest with ourselves, we realize that, hey, these were things that we kind of just invented ourselves. But regardless, when we walk in disappointment and we stay in that place of disappointment and crisis, the enemy will use those disappointments to steal our joy and to steal our dreams. And the other great thing that Greg shared with us last week is that we need to realize that God's perspective on success is often operating in a different timeline to our perspective on success. So often when our dreams aren't fulfilled by lunchtime, we kind of go, God, where are you? Come on, Lord. I mean, I, where I had my faith operating all morning and lunch has come and gone and I still haven't seen the realization of your promises. But God told Abram that he would be the father of many nations. And when he died, all he had was Isaac. But God's promises were true. Because Isaac was the seed of that promise that God had made to Abram. And through Isaac, Abram became the father of many nations. He saw the seed in his lifetime, but the only full outworking of that happened generations, thousands of generations later. And not just physical seed, but spiritual seed as well. And that's why father is known as, Abram is known as the father of faith, which means that he's our father as well. And so sometimes we lose perspective because we think that these time frames need to be met within our kind of like within a few years or a few decades or even our lifetime. But God's perspective can be very different. And the dreams and the visions and the plans that he's given you may only be fully fulfilled in the generations to come. And so Greg did a great kickoff for us expecting hope. And I'm going to continue that today. And I'm going to look at the topic of confirming hope. And I'm going to look at two things in particular. The first thing is going to be, well, what happens? It's all good and well to start off, but what happens when we hit snags? What happens when we hit those disappointments? What do we then do? How do we press on? How do we persevere? And how do we then say, God, I need you to help confirm the hope that you've placed in my heart, even though it's hard and it's tough and it's hurting right now? And the second thing we're going to see by the end of the sermon this morning is that ultimately our hope is about one person. Ultimately, our hope is in one person, and that's in Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And ultimately, it is only found, true hope is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to go further and we're going to look at what it means to confirm hope. And our passage that we're going to be going through together, the theme passage this morning is in Matthew chapter 11, 
I'm going to have the key scriptures up here. But if you've got your Bibles with you or your iPhones or iPads, you can flick, on, flick there as well. And before we read it, though, I want to just put a bit of a kind of just sketch a bit of background. Who was John the Baptist? And how was he significant in the life of Jesus and in our lives today as we study him in the Word of God? Well, John was the forerunner. He was the one who came before Jesus. He was the one who introduced Jesus to the world. He was the one who introduced Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, as the one who would take away the sins of the world, as the one who would liberate Israel and set her free. John went ahead. He was that voice crying in the wilderness. He was the one that prepared the way. He was the one that got things ready for when Jesus to start his ministry. And not only did he get things ready, but he kick-started Jesus' ministry as well. Because his ministry started after he came to John and said, John, I need you to baptize me. And so John baptized Jesus in water. And when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And that was the, that was the act that kick-started Jesus' ministry. But John was much more than just a ministry colleague. John was a cousin. John was born a few months before Jesus. And so these two boys grew up together. Their families hung out together. They would spend Passovers together. These guys played together. They grew up together. And from an early age, I believe John knew that Jesus was special. That there was anointing upon this man's life that he was more than just a mere human being. And God started preparing their hearts, knitting them together from a very, very young age to set them both up for the ministry, the plans and the purposes that he had laid up for each of them. Jesus, speaking about John, says the following in verse 11. He says, Truly I tell you that among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Not only was there great love for John, but there was great respect for John as well. These guys were tight. These guys were close. These guys understood what God's plan and God's purpose for their lives was. And these guys were working with God to make this a reality. But something has happened. And in verse 2, we see that John finds himself in prison. Not for anything he's done wrong. I mean, he hasn't cheated on his taxes. He hasn't kind of like, you know, he hasn't stopped paying his tithes. He's, there's nothing wrong. What he's done is he's been speaking out against the immoral lifestyle of the king. And the king is upset, and so he says, I've got to shut this guy up. And so he puts him in prison. And John is sitting in prison... And let's read verse 2 together. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Here's John. He understands who Jesus is. He sees God's plan and God's purpose and God's anointing on this man's life. He is obedient. He is the forerunner. He sets the way. He sets Jesus up in ministry. He knows that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. But in John's head, he never expected that that would mean that he ends up in prison whilst he hears about all these amazing things that the Messiah is doing out there. You see, in John's mind, he probably thought, the best partner you're going to have, Jesus the best chief operating officer of Jesus and Partners Incorporated has got to be me. Who knows you better? Who loves you more? Who understands God's plan for your life more than I do? 
You will be the CEO and I'm going to be your right-hand man. I'm sure John was thinking, this is it. We are going to liberate Israel and set them free. But he's sitting in prison. And there's a hopelessness that comes because as he's sitting there, he's going, did I get this right? Is Jesus really who I thought he was, who I believe God told me he was, who he told me he was? And he starts doubting and there's this hopelessness that comes. And so he calls his disciples and he says, listen, go and speak to Jesus because this is not quite working out the way I planned it in my head. The way I saw this rolling out, the way I saw this ministry unfolding, isn't quite the way that it is actually happening right now. I didn't see myself sitting in prison whilst others were being liberated and set free. So what happens? Verse 4. Jesus replies and he says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now notice, Jesus doesn't answer John's question. He doesn't say, go back and tell John, yep, I'm the Messiah. He says, go back and tell John what you see. Why? Because what you see will confirm what he already knows to be true. Go back and tell John that what he is seeing, what you are seeing, the deaf be hearing, the blind seeing, the, the, the cripple walking, the leprosy cured, the people being set free, that is going to confirm what he already knows in his heart. Even though it's not playing out right way in his head. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, John, this might not be the way you expected it, but we're on track. God's in control. People are being set free. John, I am the hope of this world. And your particular circumstances don't change that truth. John, take courage. We're on track. And God's in control. And so, friends, what confirming hope means. Firstly, confirming hope means that acknowledging that hope doesn't always look the way we imagine it to look. In our heads. When Joseph and Mary thought about their life as a new married couple, I'm positive it didn't include a premarital teenage virgin pregnancy. If you asked them what their hope was for their marriage, I don't think they would have said, Me pregnant before we get married. When God, through the angel, speaks to Mary and said, you're going to be blessed beyond and above all women. I don't think her hope at that moment was the shame and the guilt and the stigma that she would feel as a result of being pregnant before she was betrothed to Joseph. But yet God's hope was different from her hope. And God's hope resulted in the greatest pregnancy of all time which has changed the world forever confirming hope means that in order to receive God's hope we first need to let go of our false expectations of hope when Joseph, different Joseph the Joseph in the book of Genesis when he got the dreams that his brothers would bow down and worship him, that his mother and his father would bow down and worship him I don't think he had any idea 
what journey he was about to embark on. In fact, those dreams made a lot of sense. Joseph was already the favorite. Joseph was already the blue-eyed boy. He got the best clothes from daddy. He rode the best camels that daddy had. Joseph was it. And when he shared this dream with his brothers, they were irritated because they knew it was true. If anybody was going to be ruling over them in that family, it was going to be Joseph. But Joseph's understanding or expectation of that hope was not that he would be end up in a pit and being sold as a slave. Joseph's understanding of that hope which he had been given by God was not that he would be falsely accused and end up in an Egyptian prison. But in that moment, Joseph had to decide, am I going to hold on to my understanding of hope and get bitter? Or am I going to say, God, I don't not quite know how this has worked out, but Lord, I'm going to rely on your hope. I'm going to rely on your promises and your dreams. And I know he must have done that. Why do we know that? Because when he was faced in prison by a butler and a baker who had their own dreams, Joseph responded by saying, tell me your dreams because God gives me the interpretation of dreams. Now, if this was a man that had said, God, this hope you gave me is not the way I played it out in my head. And he was, there was this unmet expectation and he was there for bitter and he was that said, God, I'm not going any further until you fix this. He would not have been ready to respond to those needs in the prison when they arose. Finally, friends, we need to seek God for who he is and not who we think we need him to be. John is sitting in prison. He has this way, he's got this thought, he's got this process of how this is going to look, how he and Jesus are going to take over the world and set people free. But he has to let that go. He doesn't even know at that moment in time that by letting it go and embracing God's hope is going to result in him never getting out of prison and it's going to result in his death by beheading. But that's God's purpose and God's plan and God's hope for John's life. And so we need to see God for who he is and not who we think we need him to be. You see, folks, ultimately, that's lordship. Ultimately, that's about God, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so now you might be stopping there going, just, just, hold on, Dory, just wait, wait, wait one minute. Uh, are you saying that uh, there are no upfront guarantees? There's no guarantee that I'm going to like this journey that God puts me on. Like this hope that he has set aside for me to follow. Uh, but I've got to commit to this thing up front. Yeah, that's exactly what it means. Well, just wait a minute, one more question. Dorian, are you saying that there may be a constant challenge to deal with? Constant challenge to deal with these unmet expectations. And despite these unmet expectations to continue to see God for who He is and not who I'm wanting Him to be. Yep, that's, that's right as well. Because I see that from God's Word too. Because that's what Lordship is. But I also know this is from God's Word, friends. The Word of God tells us that when we do embrace His hope under His Lordship, He is faithful to set us free. He is faithful to impart joy. He is faithful to build his kingdom in us and through us. And he is faithful to give us every desire of our heart. You see, folks, there are no guarantees that it's going to be pleasant. But there is a guarantee that you will have joy in that process of following him and pursuing his hope.
So don't take my word for it. Let's go and have a look at a few more scriptures. John chapter 15 verse 7 says, If you remain in me, in other words, if we remain in Jesus, and my words, the words of Jesus remain in us, in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. As I was preparing this sermon, I was enjoying all the passages of the Scripture where we could look at men and women, heroes, of, or, or, heroes through history, and apply these principles to their lives. But God said, right, I want you to do that, but I want you to do one more thing, Dorian. I want you to apply this principle and share an event in your life. And so I said, okay, God, which event do you want me to share? And he said, I want you to share the hardest, most difficult, most destructive, hurtful experience you've been through. So I said, okay, Lord. And it was easy because I knew immediately which one it was. I was 16 years old. I had lost my natural father many years before that, probably at the age of one or two, uh, through divorce. And um, I never really knew him. But God brought a new man into our life. From about the age of five, he brought a man into our lives who loved us who loved my mother, who married my mother. And for the next 10 years, we had what I can only describe as the absolute perfect family relationship. He loved God. He loved us even though we weren't related to Him. He served us. He parted in me the principles, biblical principles that I still hold true to and hold dear to today. He was my idol he was my hero. I tell you what, I wasn't a fighter, but if anybody said anything about my dad, believe me, I would have taken you out. Because this guy was God to me. And as he followed God, I just, it just, God just did amazing things in my life. But things started unraveling when the marriage, after about 10 years, was being challenged. And I want to tell you that as a 16-year-old, my world fell apart. This man, the only real father that I really knew, the one who, was, who had been with me, who had guided me, who had loved me, who had supported me, who had counseled me, who had challenged me, who had, who had discipled me, who had punished me, this man, the only man, the man that I kind of, in my head, this hope, this marriage, the way it worked out is at the age of 50, I would still be seeing him every single Christmas. We'd be spending holidays together. This is the way it played out in my head. This man who had laid down his life for us, all three of us, my mother, my sister, and myself, that was the hope I had. That was the hope, that was the hope I had had in my head. And so I hold on to that scripture, John 15 verse 7. I said, Lord, marriage Divorce is not of you. You are not in support of divorce. You, you, in fact, your Bible prohibits divorce. So I'm on strong ground, God, when I say I refuse to accept that. And Lord, your word will back me up. John 15 verse 7, God, if I remain in you and your words remain in me, I can ask whatever I want and it will be done. And I stood on that scripture. And I held on to that scripture. Friends, I spent hours. Every morning before school, I'd be on my knees worshiping God and in the Word. Every afternoon after school, I'd be on my knees, worshiping God, reading His Scripture. Every evening before bed, I'd be on my knees, loving God, reading Scripture. And He started doing incredible things in my life, but I believed with all my heart that that Scripture would come to pass. 
But the marriage failed. And my father left. And the devastation and the pain and the hurt that I felt was so severe. This wasn't, this wasn't theoretical. This wasn't, if this happens, trust God. This, this was not theoretical for me. This was real. This was my daddy and the enemy had destroyed something that was so precious and so beautiful. And he was no longer living in our home, part of my daily existence. And in that crisis, friends, I felt devastation and hurt. The disappointment was so hard and so real. But I praise God because in that moment, I was so weak that I didn't know what to do. And I praise God that in that moment, I just threw myself at his feet and I said, Lord, I can't fight. I can't do this. I don't know if I'm ever going to feel normal again, Lord. But Lord, you just please help me. That was the grace of God. That was God's grace upon my life. God never abandoned me. And 35 years later, when I look back on that event, I know that even though that divorce was not God's first prize for their life, even though that, that family breaking up was not God's first prize for our lives, God did so much in me, despite the fact that the enemy won a mini battle and a mini victory. There were certain things that God showed me in that time, firsthand about his father heart. Things that I wasn't able to learn from my natural father, but things that I was able to learn from God in that very moment, in that desperation, realizing that I needed to cry out to him and rely on him and him alone. And those principles that he did, those not theoretical principles, but those real principles that he did, that he laid in my life, has made me a better father and a better husband today. As amazing as my father had been, I realized that there was an element of hero worship and idolatry that was not of God. And that when you put your faith and trust in people, rather than in God within them, you can be let down and you can be disappointed. And friends, the Holy Spirit did inside of me a maturing process over the next 12 months that I would never want to repeat, and I trust I never will, but that did more in me over 12 months than he had done in the previous 15, 16 years of my life and my walk with him. Romans 8.28 became more than just a theoretical scripture to me because I saw that in the midst of devastation and hurt and disappointment, God causes all things to indeed work together for good to those who love him and those that are called according to his purposes. And friends, I want to tell you that God revealed to me that John 15, 7 is not that I can still rely on John 15, 7 because he re I realized that it wasn't up to me. It wasn't even up to God alone for that marriage to be restored and he could have done it. It was up to mom and dad to decide in whose hope they were going to put their trust. It wasn't Dorian's decision. And it wasn't God's decision on his own either. But if the two of them had prepared to say, God, this isn't quite the way we planned it in our heads, Lord. But God, we choose to trust in you. I believe the outcome would have been different. But God showed that to me as well. And that was part of the maturing process that he took me through. And friends, for that I'm so grateful. I turn 50 next year. 
Linda turns something a lot less than that. But next year we celebrate 25 years of marriage. Amen. I, I say that not to brag but to encourage you because Belinda's story, whilst different from mine, is filled with dysfunction and hurt and disappointment and despair with another dysfunctional marriage relationship. Not hers, but her parents. And in a world with disposable marriages, what chance do you give two people that come from dysfunctional, broken marriages to be able to make it work when they try it for themselves? And I tell you what, friends, as a result of the pain and the hurt and the heartache that we both went through, we were able to hold on to the promise that God said to us, the curse stops here. The curse stops with you and with your generations to come. And friends, that's why when I think 25 years, I say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Because outside of you, none of that would have been possible. So what do I do? What do we do when we're faced with those challenges? Well, Proverbs 13 verse 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. That's referring to what Greg spoke about last week, about the disappointments that we face. Remember the illustration? I'm coming to see you on Tuesday. I'm bringing carrot cake. Carrot cake is your all-time favorite. Things go wrong. He rocks up four hours late. No carrot cake. Are you disappointed? Eh, I would be. Is that a legitimate disappointment? Sure. Greg promised he's bringing carrot cake. So sometimes they're legitimate disappointments, but often they're illegitimate disappointments. That kind of like, you know what? I had no reason to expect and believe that except that I made it up in my own head. So here's the question. Here's the question. How do I know what's a legitimate unmet expectation and what's an illegitimate unmet expectation? How do I know whether this is something, this hope that I'm persevering, that I'm pursuing is of God and it's not something made up, but the enemy has derailed us and I just need to press on and persevere? How do I know? Well, how do I know whether this unmet expectation and disappointment and this hurt kind of like is, is not of God and, it, you know, I've kind of created this myself and I now need to repent and kind of move on? How do I know which one it is? Can I tell you a little secret? It doesn't really matter. It's nice to know, I agree. It's nice to know, is this hope legit or is this hope not legit? You know, it's nice to know that. But I want to tell you something else I know, is that in the moment, it all feels legitimate. Right there when my family was being destroyed, it felt like that was legitimate. God would not want that for my life and for our lives. And so I stood on the Word of God and I pressed in. Right whether that hope is legitimate or illegitimate, it feels legitimate in the moment. 35 years later, I look back and I say it would have been irrational for me to turn my back on God for something that did not concern me and my hope, but something that concerned the hope of my parents, right? But in the moment, it felt really legitimate. It felt like the enemy was hitting us and that we needed to stand up to him. Well, here's the secret, folks. It doesn't matter which one it is because we do the same thing. And so whether I'm in a legitimate, unmet need and expectation, and the enemy is just resisting us, what do I do? I'm, God is carrying me through that situation. I acknowledge that you're a good, good God, Lord, and I press on into your hope and I persevere. Right? Amen. What if it's illegitimate? What if it's illegitimate and God's going, okay, this is not quite what I had in mind. I know this is in your head. It's not quite what I had in mind. What's our response? Hey, it's exactly the same. 
God, you're a good, good God. I don't understand what I'm going through right now, but God, I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to press in and persevere. Amen? And so, folks, it doesn't matter whether it's legitimate or illegitimate. If God shows you clearly, wonderful. But the response is the same. And so I'm wrapping up now. And I want to wrap up by looking at one last scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 tells us this. That all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him we utter I amen to God for His glory. You see folks, all hope is only true hope when it's in Christ. Any hope outside of Jesus will be hopelessness. Will result in unmet expectations. Will, rem- will, ex- will, will result in pain and disappointment. But when I say God, I know this is not about me. It's about you. When I say God, the more I get into you and the more your word gets into me, the more I realize, Lord, that my thoughts become your thoughts. My desires become your desires. My decisions become your decisions. And when I do that, Lord, I know that all things I desire will be given to me because my desires and your desires are one and the same thing. And friends, when we do that, we embrace hope, His hope, and it transforms our lives. As we close in prayer today, I want to ask you two questions. Firstly, What are the promises that God has given you as part of his plans and purposes for your life? And secondly, have these promises grown cold? And are you dealing with disappointments? You know what? It's okay to be disappointed. It was okay for John to wonder, Jesus, is this right? But it's not okay to brood there. It's only one response is okay. And that's, Lord, I surrender. I give my life to you. Transform my life with your hope, Lord Jesus, that together we may move forward. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're in control. We thank you that your heart is that we may prosper in all things And that your kingdom will be established in us and through us. And so, Father, as we pray today, Lord, we pray that you would restore hope. Not our understanding of hope, Lord, but your hope. 